I'm Dr. Jacqueline Duje, and you're listening to What is Black Podcast, the podcast where we address issues important to raising healthy and thriving black children and teens. So I am so happy to be back for the second half of season two. It's been, um, I've been on hiatus, hashtag um, summer, if you want to call it a summer. Been pretty busy um, spending time with uh, family, friends, work, um, and also very busy um, addressing um, the impact of health, racism on the health of um, children and adolescents. Um, been busy um, doing spe- doing several speaking engagements where I've had the opportunity to either be on a, be on a panel with other great um, experts or to speak directly to um, parents about how to talk about race and racism given the recent events that have occurred this summer the protests against police brutality, the protests for social justice, racial justice, um, and the fight for um, for addressing inequality. Um, also, we've seen a lot of, heard a lot of news about um, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, so much more. And, you know, recently, um, the, the deaths that occurred, the death that occurred in Rochester, um, and the the incident with Jacob Blake, I mean the list goes on and on. Um, but I'm I'm glad that I'm back and can really engage in more conversations about those important topics. But also um, really talk about ways that we can affirm our kids um, in in light of all the negativity that's going on. And as I've always said. And you may be tired of me here, tired of me saying this, but I love books. I love books. And I think they're wonderful tools um, for us to talk to our kids about important issues. Um, but also, um, I love I love the idea of joy. Right. Um, and especially during in today's episode, we're going to shed light on black boy joy. Um, we have a special guest today, um, Michael W. Waters. He's an award-winning author, activist, professor, and pastor. He's also a sought-after speaker, both nationally and internationally. And he's also a frequent social commentator for major media outlets. He was even named one of America's emerging leaders by Ebony Magazine. And has received multiple honors for his work in peace and justice. Um, Michael's actually written um, a wonderful um, picture book, inspired by real life events. So so it does, you know, there's a through line, I think for the rest of this um, season, back to the events that have occurred earlier this year. And it's a story of a boy named Jeremiah and his family who discovers hopeful forms of activism and advocacy response to the gun violence in their community. The book even includes a discussion guide by the Muhammad Ali Center and a portion of the publisher's sales, sales proceeds will be donated um, to this organization. So I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation um, with Michael as we talk a little bit more about his book and his work. Um, so we're going to talk about um, For Beautiful Black Boys Who Believe in a Better World, um, which is coming out um, September 22nd and has also been featured in Essence, Essence Magazine. So so I think it's a really good read and I, I've also had the opportunity to read the book. So let's get into the interview and I hope you enjoy it. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm deeply delighted to be with you. Thank you so much. So as I shared in the introduction, we're going to focus today on your upcoming picture book for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world. 
And, you know, prior to our, to our conversation, I was mentioning to you, you pack so much into this lovely book. So um, when to get in, you know, of course, I think one of my first questions when I talk to authors is always, what is the inspiration and the story behind um, the book for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world? Well, for us, our inspiration was our beautiful black boy named Jeremiah. Um, as I write in my author's note and still believe to this day, uh, he's the most beautiful black boy that I've ever laid eyes upon. And receiving the, the privilege of being his father has been life changing. And um, I've been grateful for uh, the lessons learned and the opportunities to grow alongside him. There's an old saying uh, that when a child is born, a father or a mother is born at the same time. And I believe that I can trace back, if you will, uh, this part of my life, uh, the ways in which I engage and consider things in the world uh, to the time that I was privileged to become his father. Now, if the story itself comes from our experiences uh, with race and racial violence and gun violence, our observations of the world over the last several years. So this is a story uh, that is rooted in our experience. And uh, that was the inspiration for the book. Now, I totally agree with you. I think, I mean, I also have two black sons. And, you know, when they're born, right, you you really don't want to think about how race is going to impact them, right, as they as they grow up. But unfortunately, right, and I, you know, you, you can't help but separate the two. And so, again, just just thinking back to, these, you know, these hard, those hard conversations and topics, right? Racial violence, police violence, racism. How were you able to think about how to construct a narrative about those difficult topics, but put it in a picture book form? Like how, how, what was that process like for you to even, to, to go from a thought, these, these difficult concepts, and then have it, have it, written for um, a child to understand? Well, you know, the great James Baldwin talked about the fact that there comes a time in the life of a black parent where they become aware of the fact that they are powerless to shield their black children from the experience of racial discrimination. Uh, He puts it around the age of 30 when you recognize that you're unable to shield them from all the experiences that you have had yourself, which then necessitates the importance of preparing them uh, with as much information as you can provide them, as much knowledge as you can provide them for how to interact and move in a world that does not always celebrate and honor uh, their beautiful blackness. And so that was really uh, our opportunity and even our challenge uh, to attempt to cultivate in the mind first of this young black man, a sense of security, a sense of power that will enable him uh, to negotiate this world ultimately as a black man. And a part of that are lessons that are given very early uh, that you well know uh, raising uh, sons as well about how they are to move when they are in a grocery store or in some other retail setting Uh, to always get a receipt because you never know between the time you make a purchase and the time you attempt to make an exit, whether someone will accuse you of stealing 
uh, some of the other interesting things that we teach our young men in particular uh, that other parents don't necessarily have to teach uh, their children as a means of survival. So really this book, uh, and there is a lot here because it comes from uh, our experience. It comes from the various encounters uh, that we have had viewing acts of racial violence and racial hatred in the media, things happening within our neighborhood and in our community. And even because of the work in which I'm engaged and the work in which my wife uh, is also engaged, being on the front lines of movement and justice, the things that they have been made aware of uh, because they are our children. And so uh, all those things came together. And, and to tell you exactly how it came together, I was on a flight to Los Angeles to uh, speak at a conference and sitting there in uh, that airplane seat, began thinking about a conversation that I had recently had with our son after the death of a young man by the name of Jordan Edwards, uh, who was shot and killed here near Dallas. Uh, this young black brother, Jordan Edwards, was sitting in a vehicle uh, that was of no threat or uh, any harm to former officer Roy Oliver, and yet he still shot his gun indiscriminately into that car where Jordan Edwards, his brothers and cousins were. Uh, the bullet struck him in the head and he died. I was asked, as I'm frequently asked, to speak at the vigil uh, alongside the family uh, in his hometown of Balt Springs near Dallas. And uh, our son was there. And that's not unusual for him to have been present with us in that type of setting. But I believe that because Jordan was closer in age to our son, Jeremiah, at the time, that it made a major impact on him, more so than some of the other incidences that he was aware of. And when we got home, Jeremiah was about 10 years old at the time. He came in our bedroom as we were retiring for the night, and he began a series, a, a litany of things that he was tired of. He said, you know, I'm tired of people killing each other. I'm tired of people hurting each other. I'm tired of people not liking one another because they're different with the color of their skin. And that then began a conversation that my wife and I held together with him. And that conversation was still on my mind as I boarded that plane. And before I knew it, I was taking pen to paper. And uh, after a few moments, I looked up and felt that there was something there uh, that would be helpful to share with the world. What I find, and I and thank you for thank you for sharing um, that the background for for the book as well as um, the answer to my question because I find you know I find what you're saying like what would really resonated to me everything you know everything resonates but when you mentioned your son Jeremiah coming into your room you know around bedtime I mean though I find that even with my with my youngest son right as he's been as he's grown up, right? His teenage years, those have been like some of the most pivotal times we've had conversations, right? So he'll come in after, you know, after he, after he witnessed something at school, you know, at a sport event or something, or just something else throughout the day, right? You know, weighed on him. And as he's, as he's processing it, it's that, it's that right before bed conversation. And then it's like, it makes you, makes you kind of like, you know, it's haunting in a way, right? Because it's that because after you leave, you start to realize, oh my God, like what he's been thinking about, right? And how that's affected him. 
And the fact that you're able to then take that conversation to sort of gift other parents as well, who will more than likely have these conversations. It may not always be at nighttime, but these conversations are going to come up, right? And when I know for me, it's been difficult, right, to have these conversations, I'm just imagining, right, you had a 10-year-old where you're having this conversation and I've had maybe like maybe some more intense conversations as my son has gotten older and maybe you as well. But even as kids are witnessing um, more deaths, right, more news reports, um, witnessing, you know, more more acts of violence, right, Um What's so nice too is that you weigh that, right? It's not just it's not just talking about racism, right? It's also the process of how do we deal with it, how do we stand up to it? And if you could talk a little bit more about that, you know, that whole continuum, right? So you have your kids kind of, you know, they're concerned about these issues, they're worried about these issues, they wanna, they want answers. And then how as a parent and through the story, how the parents sort of help. Um, help the main character sort of um, find answers to these questions and really um, not just not just dwell on them. Right. But but there were opportunities to to stand up against racism. Absolutely. And, and my son is very much so like myself. You know, we take in a lot of information, process it and then release it. And so I uh, was not surprised that after you know all the things that he has seen and witnessed and his pondering those things that he'd come to the point what he was ready to share. And I think the first important thing about the ways in which my wife and I have sought to parent is to not to always attempt to force a conversation, but to be ready and present uh, when the conversation is, is time uh, to be held, when, when the child is ready uh, to really to, to speak more to what their concerns are, uh, to be present, to be proximate, but not uh, to attempt to, to, to force the issue. And we've discovered more often than not that our children, uh, I think based on the relationship that we have with them, when they get to the point really uh, where they're ready to talk, they know that they can come and speak with us. We have a very unique experience with our children as well. And I want to acknowledge that my wife is a leader in the criminal justice reform movement, uh, doing great work in that space. And so they've gotten uh, a very up close and personal view of, of the criminal justice system and what is necessary uh, to bring about true justice uh, for our communities. Uh, they've seen me uh, in the streets protesting at rallies, at marches, uh, press conferences, uh, interviews, that they've had a very unique experience with us. And so I, I know that uh, they've been very close to uh, leaders in the movement, both uh, civil rights leaders all the way forward, had those conversations. And our, our main purpose in that is to expose them to the realities of the, of the world. We did not want them to have a, a falsified sense of security, unaware that there are very real threats to your person, even as a young child, uh, that they had to have an awareness of, of these things, uh, knowing that we would do the best that we could do as, our, as their parents to, to provide security and support but also understanding that they needed to have an awareness of the world, which is not, frankly, not too different from my upbringing. And I came of age really uh, during the 90s. And, you know, in the community in which I lived in, uh, there was drug violence, there were gangs or other things of that nature, but there was also racial discrimination. And so you had to learn some lessons very early uh, in order to survive 
in order not to move in the wrong way. And I think that's still true, particularly for black and brown children. I think some people may have a false sense of security for their children because of some kind of economic achievement or where they live. And we know very well that respectability politics is not enough to preserve the safety of your child or even of yourself. Uh, you can be bird watching <laughs> in uh, Central Park and, and still have the threat of violence brought against you. So I think it's important that we prepare our children, that we have very honest conversations with them about the ways in which the world works. Uh, even with our, our youngest child, as we were driving around, we began lessons uh, related to redlining at a time when you know most people are, are not having those type of conversations. And we were having those conversations in a way in which a child can understand. And I think we also have to recognize the capacity and agency of children. Uh, they are many times wise beyond their years and are already discerning things about the world even before we have a conversation. And so when we talked about redlining, you don't necessarily have to use that term right off, but they know, you know, it's very interesting when we're on this side of town, there are an abundance of, of restaurants and of movie theaters and of other opportunities. But when we're on this side of town, those things are lacking. They're already observing these things. They're already observing that, you know, there, there's this daily gunfire at night outside our home. Why are there always shooting in the community? What's going on? And why doesn't this happen in other places uh, within uh, our, our, our city? They're already beginning to contemplate those things. And we just need to somewhat invite ourselves to journey with them uh, to the point that they're ready to have that deeper conversation. Uh, but we also, I think it's imperative that we give them a sense of hope, that we uh, connect our narrative to the narrative of struggle that has gone on in this nation for centuries. And those who have moved uh, forward progress, uh, sometimes with great sacrifice, but nonetheless moved forward progress for the benefit of us all. And so we've also uh, had the joy of personally introducing them to individuals as well as reading materials and, and viewing documentaries so that they can have an understanding uh, that when people who are dedicated and focused towards changing the world uh, journey in that regard, oftentimes they find uh, that the world is changed by their sacrifices. I'm excited to welcome our new sponsor, Puzzle Huddle. Puzzle Huddle creates puzzles that feature diverse Black characters. They believe that when children play with toys that feature images that look like them, they have the opportunity to be affirmed and engaged in imaginative play in a very personal way. And I believe this brand really supports the mission of what is Black to help raise healthy and thriving Black children through play and seeing themselves reflected back in the toys that they play with. These puzzles are also a great excuse to play together as a family. One of my favorite puzzles is Ballerina Love that I'm looking at right now. I was excited to unpackage it and actually put the puzzle together. It features a beautiful brown girl dancing. I'm ready to frame it and put it on my wall. It's that good. But there are so many other wonderful choices featuring characters that are doctors, which I love because I'm a pediatrician, scientists, and so much more. Buy your puzzle today. Check them out at puzzlehuddle.com. So I'd like to like to focus a little bit on that word joy that you mentioned, right? Because I'm seeing a lot of a lot of like a counter narrative to to the struggle, you know, this 
this mention of of joy, right? Black joy or just just joy in general. And so that so that stood out for me in your re- response to that question. And I was just wondering what your take take is on why it is important, right, to have joy in this movement as well as the struggle. Everything related to black life in America, I think would be impossible without joy. I mean, everything we do is an act of resistance. Black love is a resistance. Raising our children uh, to love themselves is an act of resistance. Celebrating our inherent beauty, uh, having communion with God, uh, despite what others suggest, uh, trying to deny us our full right as children of God. Uh, you know, the music, the, the dance, uh, artistry, creativity, poetry, even resistance, uh, all those things are, are, are part of our joy. And so, you know, I, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. In fact, I think I see them as essential. I see joy as an essential aspect of our journey, uh, whether it was our forebears who even under the whip of slavery steal the way to hush harbors and were able to connect with with God and to find joy and exuberant praise, uh, whether it was during the days of uh, the lynching campaigns here in America, and yet you still had the tremendous artistry uh, that arose from the blues and from jazz and from the Harlem Renaissance uh, to the second Harlem Renaissance or the second Black Renaissance, I like to call it, that happened around the late 80s through the 1990s, the Spike Lees and uh, the classic era of hip hop. We've always found a way to take the pains of the world and to feel them. I mean, we've we've not uh, had a falsified sense of the threats around us, but we still found the power to infuse into some of those desperate places uh, joy. And, And that's been our superpower as Black people. I think that's why black culture is celebrated and known all over the world. And I think that's why people connect uh, to our story, because it is a continuous story of overcoming evil with good. It's a continuous story of pressing forward despite everything pressing back against you. There's a Greek word called dioko, and uh, there's a biblical passage that talks about pressing toward the mark. Indioko is the word that is used there. Indioko means to press back against everything that presses against you. And I think that has been the inheritance of black people. We've always had a press back and that press back has often been centered in this sense of joy. I mean, even the ability to sing hopeful songs during the days of the civil rights movement while they were in the back of paddy wagons or while they were in jails, and even the jailers were telling them, shut up, be quiet. And every time they tried to quell their voice, the voices rose with even greater power. Um, So yes, I I find joy in movement. I find joy in struggle. There's something powerful and beautiful about a people who won't give up. And I hope that we are effective in sharing that story with our children. Oh, yes, I agree. And I think you know, over the last last couple of weeks, I've really been um, focusing on even the power of words and the power of story, right? In books, right? Now I'm into, you know, I, I'm listening to a lot of um, Toni Morrison um, interviews, and the one, the, you know, like the one thread, right? The through line for me is that history, 
you know, going back to our denial, right? Initially, when 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 Black people were enslaved, we were denied reading, right? Denied writing, denied that access to literacy, and how books and and these powerful authors that you referenced, you know, James Baldwin, right? They in their words, there's power. Absolutely. And so 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 again, those things are just resonating resonating with me as you were talking. And again, so for, so, so you know, it wasn't a prepared question, but again, I was just thinking about it. Like, what are, what are you, what are your reflections on your ability to write this story and that connection to power, struggle, joy, and really educating young people and opening up those conversations? Well, I think a part of it comes uh, with a sense of responsibility. Um, I'm a father. I'm a pastor. And I think of the young people who are part of our congregation. I'm the son and grandson and great, great grandson of powerful men and women who contributed greatly in their own way uh, to our society. I think about my grandfather who grew up in the fear of the Klan and was nearly lynched himself as a young man who over the trajectory of his life began breaking down all sorts of barriers, uh, becoming an educator, becoming a county judge and a county commissioner, even in the face of great uh, racial discrimination. And so I always ask the question, given what others have given to me, given the sacrifices of the generations that have come before us, what is our responsibility so that we can make contributions to the generations who are coming behind us. So I see this as a part of a kind of an ongoing narrative, an ongoing legacy of responsibility that each generation seeks to work in their own generation to make the world better for the generation that is following behind. And and I hope that's something that we are accomplishing. And one of the ways in which we do that is through books, by telling stories, by uh, providing information by educating our people. And for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world, uh, I think it's an opportunity to do that. And I've been very encouraged by uh, your response and responses of others who have read the book and who have found inspiration and found strength uh, through the story, that strength to make a difference in their own time. And, and also try to lift up the fact in the book that you don't necessarily have to wait to become an adult before you can make contributions. There are things that even children can begin contributing to their world right now. And in fact, I think there are children who are ready to do something. Again, we should never underestimate the agency and capacity of children. They're children who are looking at things in the world and they are frustrated by them. They know that there must be something better. And there are ways right now that they can contribute towards making the world that they ultimately desire uh, to inherit. And uh, so, you know, whether it be writing letters to uh, elected officials, whether it be showing up in protest, uh, and many young people, even in the midst of this pandemic, were alongside their parents and other trusted individuals in the midst of protest. Uh, Whether it's doing such things, you know, uh, in their school when it's safe for them to go back to school, to make sure that persons are not bullied, uh, that people are not ignored. There are things that children um, already have in their mind to do. And I think the greatest hopes, frankly, that we have for our world is uh, the young people 
uh, who are coming up at this time, who are gaining a, a great awareness of things at a very early age, but not just an awareness of things. There's a fire uh, that is being birthed in them to be a part of the change. So, uh, again, I, I think, you know, that's part of the reason why it was illegal for us to read while literacy was made illegal for black people. Uh, because uh, those who would have kept us uh, in eternally in bondage knew uh, that there's something powerful that can be in, unleashed uh, when you read, uh, because it's more than just words on a page. It's thoughts of resistance, thoughts of power. It expands your awareness of the world. It connects you more deeply to your God, and it has the capacity to thrust you forward in your work relevant it's it is now because i know the book was written you know was written before all the events of this summer how are how are you feeling how are your how are your how is your family feeling about the book and its relevance now unfortunately you know having been a part of this work for some time i know that we're often just buying time between the next hashtag uh, the reality is is that this suffering is relatively ongoing within our nation. And there are people who are always suffering great harm, whether it be at the hands of police or racial violence in general. And uh, there are many names uh, that unfortunately we may never know, uh, but are still known well to the families who lost loved ones. So it was not surprising for me uh, that this book would still have relevance. Of course, I could have never imagined uh, that we would, one, be in a global pandemic, and then we would see these incidences of, of violence, racial violence, police violence from Ahmaud Arbery to Rihanna Taylor, for whom we're still demanding justice, to George Floyd, and then the revelation of what happened to Elijah McClain even earlier still. Um, I think the way I feel is I feel that this book is providential in the sense that uh, it's a prepared text and resource uh, that is needed right now. And, you know, really, as things began breaking open behind the horrific death of George Floyd, uh, I received contacts from all over, uh, from leaders, teachers, parents, wanting to know how, how do I share this with our children? Uh, some with children, and this is their first time uh, really having to explain you know, what's going on in the world. Uh, and I, I wished at the time <laughs> that the book was right in their hands. Uh, but we were able to go ahead and release uh, the study guide and activity, activity guide early for free download, along with the coloring sheet, to at least provide uh, parents and other trusted adults something that they could use at this time. Uh, but I know that part of the uh, success it experienced so far, people have really been supporting the book is because there's such a hunger and desire to receive it. Last night I did my first advanced reading uh, with the school here in Dallas, a boys school, all boys school. And they uh, made the determination to buy a copy of the book for each one of their students. And I was reading the text uh, to the parents and students that were online. And the, 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 the curiosity, 
the amazement, the wonder in the eyes of the young men on that on that call was mesmerizing for me. It was really a gift to see how these images and words appear to be pouring water on a dry place in their lives. They just seem to be soaking it up and also looking at the eyes of their parents who, um, you know, a couple, there appeared to be tears welling up in their eyes. And I think the tears were, were of relief in the sense that they've been struggling to have these conversations, struggling to know what to say. And here was a resource that their children were connecting to. Uh, and it was one that they knew could help them uh, in having the conversation. And that was a very beautiful thing I'll never forget. My, my prayer is that everyone who will engage this text uh, with the child will find a similar experience. They'll find that uh, it answers or begins to answer uh, the questions that that young person has and helps them to have further conversations about the world, but ultimately leaves them with a sense of hope and knowing uh, that they too can be a part of the change that is needed. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation, um, Michael. So before we end, if you could share with our listeners what they can learn more about you, about the book um, for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world, and also the um, the guide and color, you know, activity sheets as well that accompany the book. Absolutely. I'd love to remain connected. You can find me online at michaelwwaters.com. Um, all my social media links are there and an opportunity for you to contact me directly as well. I uh, would love to remain connected. Uh, you can find a link to F- For Beautiful Black Boys right there on the website, or you can go to Flyaway Books, which is the publisher. At Flyaway Books, you'll find uh, the links to the download for the discussion guide, the activity guide, as well as the coloring sheet. And I pray that as you uh, download the material, and as you purchase the book, uh, tweet me. Uh, hashtag is uh, beautiful uh, for beautiful black boys. Hashtag for beautiful black boys. I'd love to know uh, how you are engaging the book, how your young people are receiving the book, and anything I can do to support your efforts. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. It was my great privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to What is Black podcast. And I want to again thank our special guest, Michael W. Waters, um, and his sharing such great you know, information and advice, as well as sharing um, the, the inspiration for his new picture book for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Share with your friends and family. To catch up on past episodes, if you're a new listener, you can go to www.whatisblack.co. You can also check out our blog site as well as sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media. We're at whatisblack, W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-K. And we look forward to having conversations with you and getting your feedback um, about this episode, prior episodes, and what more you'd like to see on the podcast. So until next time, I hope hope you I'm wishing you peace, wellness, um, and joy.